We turn again today to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 in our second message in this series that we've entitled, If My People. And you know that those three words, if my people, are the first three words of verse 14 in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Specifically, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Last week we began looking at this passage of Scripture, which is indeed a very comforting promise that God gave to King Solomon in response to Solomon's prayer at the consecration, the dedication of the temple. And just review, Solomon, as he had been privileged by God to build God's house, when this house of God, after some seven years, had finally been completed, Solomon stretches out his arms. He gathers a great number of the camp of Israel there together, the priests, the Levites, the elders of the land, the people of Israel gather, and Solomon begins to pray for them, and he intercedes on their behalf. This is at times Solomon's prayer in the previous chapters, a very interceding prayer. Solomon asks God, if these people sin and they find themselves afflicted by plague, then God, if they come to this place, I ask you that you hear their prayer. Solomon asked God if they find themselves captured in captivity by another military, then God, if they turn to this place, hear their prayer as they point to this place and heal their land restore them. Solomon lists several different scenarios, and in each of these, he asks God to hear their prayer, to restore them, to forgive them, and once again, to heal their land. As we discussed last week in chapter 7, as Solomon had made an end of praying, God's presence was so rich in that place that the ministers couldn't even attend to their work. God's glory had filled the house. And to me, again, this is a great irony as here we are this morning in the house of God with but just a handful, just just a few people, those of us who are trying to speak and trying to read, trying to pray and running the equipment to get this word out to others. It's heartbreaking to me on one hand that we read a passage about God's presence being so overwhelming in the house of God that the ministers couldn't even work. And today we're in a time when the congregation can't even meet together. But I rejoice to know that God is ever with us. He's present with us. And even in these moments such as this, He can cause a great revival in the land. And I think that as we study this passage together, 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14, we'll see this unfold that in these moments of affliction... These moments are what sets up the great revivals that we've experienced. But I just have to express once again how sad it is to me that we are all segregated and alone. We need each other. and We desperately need the house of God. Well, God comes to Solomon <clears throat> by night and he speaks to him. He appears to him. Verse 12, I have heard thy prayer and chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. And then God tells him, if I shut up heaven that there should be no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send even pestilence, epidemic, among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Whether it's the scenario of famine, the scenario of the plague of locust, the scenario of a pestilence, whether it be leprosy or some other thing, even an invading military, God, when we seek his face and turn and pray 
and humble ourselves, God will hear, God will forgive, and God will restore. Our focus today is on the spiritual discipline of prayer. Last week we spoke on humility, and we do want to spend just a few minutes connecting the concept of humility and the concept of prayer. But God tells him several things that if we do, he will hear us and he will restore us. As we think about prayer, might I just suggest, and, and I would ask you to pray for my voice this morning that it holds up to the entire message. If they say uh, in, in this part of the world, if coronavirus doesn't kill you, the pollen's going to try. And so this week, the pollen has been doing its very best to make my life as miserable as humanly possible. But as we think about the subject of prayer, it is so important for us to understand that the mentality, you might think the atmosphere that fosters a successful prayer life is humility. Now, if I'm an arrogant person and I go to God in prayer and I say, God, well, I just, I just know that you owe it to me to answer whatever it is that I'm going to ask you. Maybe I sound like the Pharisee in Jesus' ministry when Jesus taught this story of these two men that go into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee and one is a publican. And you remember these two. The Pharisee prays within himself and he begins to you know, brag on all the things that he's done. God, I thank you. I do this. I do that. I do this. And I thank you that I'm not as other men, even this publican. And the publican just smites his breast and he doesn't even look his eyes up to heaven. And he says, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know which one of those two people were commended by Jesus? And so humility fosters the atmosphere that enables our prayers to be effectual. Humility, last week's focus, more specifically humbling oneself, is often depicted in Scripture as one adorning themselves with sackcloth and ashes. I want you to see the connection between humility and prayer. We might be thinking this morning, okay, we're, we're going to hear a message on prayer, but I want you to understand that before we go, look at God's order of this. Before we go to pray, we need to humble ourselves. I heard it said years ago by a wise preacher that we can humble ourselves or God can humble us. And I can assure you that of those two options, you would prefer to humble yourself rather than having God humble you. In the Old Testament, one common way of humbling oneself was to wear sackcloth and ashes. <clears throat> sackcloth was an extremely coarse and uncomfortable fabric. It's named sackcloth, and by that, it's literally telling you that it is made of the cloth that they made sacks from. But this brings back an interesting story from my childhood. My great-grandmother was a Depression-era person, and she passed away in the early 2000s. She was a a very devoted disciple of the Lord Jesus. She is our connection as a family to the primitive Baptist. She was a primitive Baptist. Her husband was a deacon. And she would often report and tell us a story because if you've ever visited someone who is struggling with the early phases of dementia, you know that when a person has dementia, they often repeat the same stories to you over and over again. <clears throat> As we would go visit her after church, her house was on the way home from church. She was too old and too sick to go to church. She would often tell us the story of the day that she got married. And she would say that she was plowing the field in a potato sack dress when her husband-to-be picked her up in a Model A Ford. And they drove the Model A Ford. They went and they got married. They turned around, they came home, and they got back to plow in the field. But she would often tell me that the common dress that little girls would wear in that day was a tater sack dress. They had to wear sackcloth because it's the only thing that they had coming out of the Depression to wear. They were that poor. Sackcloth is very uncomfortable. If you've ever gone and picked up an old-fashioned sack like you use, maybe the only exposure that we have in our present day is a sack race at the fall festival or the fair at your school where one person puts their right leg in it, the other person their left leg in it, and they hop along. It's a very coarse material. It's a very coarse fabric. It's very uncomfortable. It causes you to chafe. It causes you to itch. 
When people in the Old Testament would humble themselves, they would make a garment out of sackcloth and they would wear that. And it was self-deprecating. It was intentionally uncomfortable to the person who was doing it. And when God says for us to humble ourselves, one of the Old Testament pictures is that of sackcloth and ashes. But you see, the other ingredient there other than the sackcloth is what? Well, it's ashes. Now, they would take the ashes. Sometimes they would lay down in it. Other times they would lay down in it and wallow around in it and get it all over their skin, what skin is remaining, what skin is visible. And they would sit there looking like a homeless beggar with nothing else in sackcloth and ashes, maybe even like a leper, they would completely throw themselves down in the dirt. Now, in our day and age, we would be tempted to look down on someone like that, wouldn't we? That is the Old Testament picture of biblical humility. To throw myself down in sackcloth and in ashes. To make myself as close to the dirt from which I was formed in my father Adam at the beginning of time as humanly possible to make myself nothing. There are several occurrences of this in the Old Testament. We want to give you just a few of these. The first occurrence of someone casting themselves down in sackcloth and ashes is that of Jacob, the man whom God would name Israel. In Genesis chapter 37... To give you the backstory of this, the children of Israel, and by that I mean literally 11 or 10 of the 12 sons of Jacob, had in their jealousy taken their brother Joseph, their father's favorite son, and they had dropped him into a pit. They had planned to kill him. But Reuben intercedes. As Reuben is gone, they take Joseph out of the pit and they sell him to a group of Ishmaelite traders. To cover this up, they take this coat of many colors that Jacob had made him. They put the blood of a goat on it. They tear it up. They hand it to Joseph, or to Jacob rather, and they say, Joseph, your son is dead dead. We found his coat in root home. Certainly he has been torn to shreds by an animal. He is dead. Joseph was not dead. Joseph has been sold to the Ishmaelites who would eventually sell him to Egypt. And as with most biblical calamities, God overrules this. God has his agenda that he works despite this. And as you know, Joseph, years later, would be the instrument that God would use to, in a moment of famine, a moment of drought, a moment of starvation, use this man in Egypt, Joseph, to even save his brothers. But Jacob, when he hears this, he rent his clothes. We see the rending of clothes a lot in Scripture. This happened even in the New Testament area when Jesus stood before the high priest Caiaphas and they would ask him, are you the son of God? And he says, thou sayest, which means as you have said, it is so. And they would take their garment and they would rip it as a sign of disapproval and disgust for that which has been spoken. When something terrible happens, many times people would grab their garments and they would rip their garments as a sign of disappointment or sadness or anger or disgust. Jacob grabs his clothes and he rips his clothing. He rips his clothing. He's heartbroken. He puts sackcloth upon his loins and he mourned for his son many days. You know, as a side point, here's a lesson that we need to learn just out of this as a tangent that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with what we're talking about today, but sin never exists in a vacuum. There's always someone who is hurt by sinful behavior. Sometimes people today describe victimless crimes. There are no such things as victimless crimes. Someone is always hurt by sin if nothing else, the person who is committing it 
Jacob rips his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He mourns for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. The hypocrisy there, they know where Joseph is. They have done this to their father. They try to comfort him, and he refused to be comforted. He said, I will go down unto the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. I will cry every day of my life because of my son that I have lost. They thought that by taking Joseph away from the situation that Jacob's affection for him would not be the same, but that wasn't the case. He loved him just as much, if anything, he spent more of his time thinking about Joseph than he did before. Their plan had backfired. Their plan had backfired. But what does Jacob do? He casts himself down in sackcloth and in ashes. Another interesting occurrence of sackcloth and ashes is found in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 3. You know, 1 Samuel is devoted much of it to David's rise to being king and his battles with Saul, all that had to happen until David was the undisputed king over Israel. Second Samuel spends a lot of time talking about David's kingship, unquestioned, unchecked kingship over the nation of Israel. Saul, King Saul, was dead. There was a man who was one of Saul's generals who was also related to King Saul named Abner. Well, Abner comes to David, and Abner begins to work a deal with David. He tells him, I come in peace. David sends him away in peace, and Abner goes about his business. In other words, Abner comes to him, and he says, you know, Abner, son of Ner. The word Abner means son of Ner. He comes to him, and he says, look, I don't want any, any battle with you. I have no quarrel with you. And so David allows him. David is a man after God's own heart. He's a very charitable man. They allowed him to go. Joab, however, David's military commander, finds Abner. Joab talks to David. David tells him what he did. Joab says, he only did that to deceive you and to trick you, David. Joab goes out. He finds Abner, and he slays Abner. Now, what do you think David thinks about this? David is distraught over this. David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, Rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. Before this, David said, Look, my kingdom and I are guiltless before God forever from the blood of Abner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on his father's house, and let there not fail from the house of Joab one that hath an issue, or a leper, or that leaneth on a staff, or that falleth on a sword, or that lacketh bread. In other words, David says, God, this is done by Joab. Let Joab and his house suffer for this, but protect us, deliver us, and keep us, because we had nothing to do with this. By the way, Joab would be a problem for David all the rest of his life. Joab was a constant, he was a ruthless military commander. There is a place in the world for ruthless military commanders. And that is a very small, small window of usefulness. When you're not in a time of war, they know nothing else. And so Joab just goes about slaughtering people. And he would the rest of his life. He was a constant problem for David. David tells Joab and all the people that were with him, rend your clothes, gird you with sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. They buried Abner and they mourned Abner. The king lamented over Abner. But what is that? It's humbling oneself. Another occurrence of this is found in the book of Job. When I think about sackcloth and ashes, my mind immediately goes to the book of Job. You know that Job was, as a man, probably the man throughout all Scripture that suffered the most. Scripture's full of stories of men who have suffered. You just read one, Abner. You just read another, Jacob and Joseph. Scripture's full of the sufferings of God's children. But of all the people in the Bible that suffered, other than the Lord Jesus, I think Job is a person who suffered the most. 
you remember that Satan comes to God and challenges God. God said, if you considered my servant Job, Satan says, well, you've put a hedge about him so great that I can't even get to him. And God says, well, I'll, I'll take the hedge away. Here's what I'll suffer you to do. And he will not curse me as you have said he will curse me. Satan afflicts Job. He loses his financial security. He loses his children. And lastly, he loses his health. He finds himself alone, covered in boils that did itch and burned. With his wife, the wonderful comforter that she is, who tells him, Job, curse God and die. Just get it over with. Thanks, honey. Thank you, dear. Just curse God and die. And yet, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job 2 and 10. When Satan went forth and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, Job took him a potsherd to scrape himself with, and he sat down, notice this in verse 8 of Job chapter 2, he sat down among the ashes. What's that telling you that Job did? <clears throat> he humbled himself in sackcloth and in ashes. Now the word sackcloth doesn't explicitly occur there in chapter 2, but if you turn over to verse 16 and verse 15, Job references the fact that I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and defiled my horn in the dust. What's he referencing there? He has humbled himself in sackcloth and in ashes. He has no money. He has no family except his wife, and now he has no health. What does Job do? He humbles himself in sackcloth and in ashes. Now again, we're speaking of humility in a message on prayer, but I want you to see the biblical framework for effectual prayer is that of a humble heart. A heart that, instead of exalting oneself, a heart that lays flat on the the ground, a heart that causes me to, to stretch out my arms and lay face first on the ground, on my knees, begging God for His mercy, confessing my sinfulness to Him. The humble man is a man whose prayer will be heard. This is the position of prayer. It's kind of amazing. Even Nineveh, and perhaps this would be a great example for us as Americans, even Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes at the preaching of Jonah. We like to compare ourselves as Americans to the nation of Israel. But think about American culture today. Think about the tens of millions of unborn babies that have been slaughtered in abortion. Think of the mockery of marriage that has been made in our country what they call alternative lifestyles. Well, the Bible refers to that as sin. The Bible refers to it as sin. Think about the way that we openly party in the streets on days such as Mardi Gras and other such events. And we're not immune to that in Alabama. It's fun to point fingers at other people, but equal debauchery occurs at the Talladega Super Speedway on a Saturday night before a race. I promise you, I spent the night there once. It made me so angry. We, at times, in this country, look more like Sodom and Gomorrah than we do Israel under King David. And so rather than comparing America with Israel, I think it's probably more appropriate to compare America with Nineveh. Joseph comes to, excuse me, Jonah comes to Nineveh. <clears throat> you might remember how he got there. God tells him to go and to preach. Nineveh is a capital city of Assyria. Assyria is the sworn enemy of the nation of Israel in this day. Jonah doesn't want to go. Jonah, in fact, books a vessel and goes the clear opposite direction of Nineveh. And then as he's on the sea, the sea begins to be 
tempestuous. A storm comes in. They begin to draw straws in this ship over which one of them God is angry at. And Jonah simply says, it's me. Cast me overboard. They cast him overboard and he's swallowed by a great whale. God prepared a great fish, as it says here. Jonah cries by reason on the third day unto the Lord, and he heard him. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou hearest my voice. Jonah 2, 2. In Jonah chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. And you can imagine Jonah's perspective here has changed. God comes to him, Jonah, go to Nineveh, preach to Nineveh. Yes, sir, this time I'm going to go to Nineveh. Jonah goes, he preaches unto them that God is going to destroy them for their iniquity. God is going to destroy them for their wickedness. Now this is interesting to us because the Bible focuses on, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and it focuses on Christ. But we see from the book of Jonah that God is also interested in the affairs of other nations. In the sermon that Paul preached on Mars Hill, Paul says that God at times winked at the foolishness and the ignorance of the Gentiles, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. God commands us to repent. He commands us to repent. All nations, all people are commanded to repent. Jonah goes and he preaches that God is going to judge them for their sin. Verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Jonah says, 40 days and it'll be overthrown. Verse 4. The people of Nineveh believed God. What did they do? They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. They are terrified that judgment is about to come. Would to God that America would respond to this current pandemic, regardless of whether it was sent by God as a judgment or simply sufferings that are common to man. Would to God that America would, res would respond to the pandemic the way Nineveh responded to the preaching of Jonah. Is America responding to the preaching of Jonah or to the pandemic as Nineveh responded to the preaching of Jonah? No, they're not. Now, you've got politicians on both sides of the aisle throwing stones at each other, people complaining, people hoarding. You have people standing on television talking about how great America is, and yes, this has come to our shores, but we are America, and we will win. Might I suggest a better approach? Might I suggest sackcloth and ashes? They humble themselves in sackcloth and ashes, from the greatest even to the least, for the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Imagine the press conference. If the president of the United States, with the vice president, and all of his entourage, came to you Monday morning in sackcloth and ashes. Imagine if Governor Ivey were to get on the television and speak to us this next week about the update in Alabama, but instead of wearing a nice dress or a suit, she was wearing sackcloth and ashes. That's the biblical response to pandemic. Sackcloth and ashes. Not preaching our own greatness, but humbling ourselves in the sight of God. He sits in his sackcloth, he sits in sackcloth and ashes. And he calls it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, let them not taste anything, let them not feed nor drink water. The king proclaims a fast, a fast that even applies to the livestock. No man, no woman, no child, no beast, no one will eat, no one or drink. Why? Because perhaps in our 
humbling of ourselves. God will see this and God will repent of his anger that we perish not. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Could you imagine all the cows being covered with sackcloth? Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Imagine how strange it would be in our house. The only beasts that we have are a Labrador and a couple of cats. The Labrador and the couple of cats would be adorned in sackcloth and ashes. Now this is extreme. This is severe. God's going to judge them. And they know God is going to judge them because God sent word through Jonah that God is going to judge them. But their response is to humble themselves. Let them turn everyone from his evil way, from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from this fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil. The word evil there means calamity that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, one might think here that God has changed his mind, and you might ask the question, how does this coincide, how does this not contradict the concept of God's immutability? God is unchanging. I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Malachi chapter 3. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews chapter 13. This doesn't contradict immutability. This is because of immutability. How do, you, how do you mean? God's attributes are unchanging. What are some of his attributes? He's holy. He's righteous. He is rich in mercy. And he is slow to wrath. Because he is slow to wrath and rich in mercy, it takes far less stimuli, if you will, to elicit his mercy than it does his wrath. And so, when they humble themselves before God, God sees and God turns from the calamity that he was going to render them. You might wonder if this was a permanent change in Nineveh. It was not. And there are, there are other passages in the Bible you can read further down the line in their history where eventually they would be judged and they would be destroyed. But for now, for now, that generation found some national repentance and God spared them of the judgment that was going to befall them. Now, by the way, Jonah, in chapter 4 and verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. Jonah was angry at God because God had spared Nineveh. God, these are my enemies. Don't you know that? Don't you want to judge them? Shouldn't they be judged because they're my enemies? But when God begins to respond to him, doest thou well to be angry, Jonah? Is it not good that I should spare Nineveh, the great city, wherein there are more than six score thousand persons that can't discern between their right and left hand that I've spared all of these people and all of these cattle? And the answer to that question is yes, it's good that God has spared Nineveh. Because mercy and repentance are beautiful things. This is the only book of the Bible, the book of Jonah, that ends in a question. And it's God asking Jonah, Jonah, is it not better that I should have spared them than it would have been if I had judged them and destroyed them? Jonah's mad that God hasn't yet destroyed the wickedness out of Nineveh. <clears throat> Might I say along those lines... God reserves judgment unto himself. What does he say? Vengeance is mine. God and God alone has the right to judge. And because of that, God will judge in his time, in his way. And unlike Jonah, we should rejoice in God's mercy. And we should pray that we would be humble people. When we humble ourselves, we put ourselves in a condition where our prayers will not be hindered. That's actually some language from the book of First Peter. And interestingly enough, Peter is writing about the condition of our homes. And he talks about our homes that when we as husbands love our wives and wives, when you submit yourselves unto your husbands, 
this occurs that your prayers be not hindered. In other words, we can live in such a way that our prayers are hindered. We want to put ourselves in a position to where God hears our prayers. Now, focusing more specifically on the concept of prayer, and we'll move quickly with this. Prayer, praying to God, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray... Prayer is a very intimate act of communication with God. And so because of that, more times than not, prayer is to be private. At the same time, prayer many times is also public. There are some occurrences of public prayer. I think Nineveh called a public fast. It was a time of public prayer and public fasting. Solomon, as he prayed before the temple when it was dedicated in Second Chronicles, the early chapters, he prays publicly before the people. We have had prayer already here twice today that was public prayer. The latter of those two went out before those who are watching online. And so prayer many times is public, but far more should prayer be private and intimate. If the only prayer that we have heard or offered this week is the public prayer that we have heard today, then we have not prayed nearly enough. In fact, I believe that we ought to pray multiple times a day. Jesus taught the parable of the unjust judge. This woman comes to an unjust judge that doesn't fear God and he doesn't regard man, and she asks him over and over and over to avenge her of her enemies who have done her wrong. And finally, she comes to him so many times that she gets on his last nerve and he avenges her simply so she leaves him alone. I give in, just leave me alone. And God, Christ, gave that parable to us that we might what? That we might always pray and never faint from praying. We have that example of the woman who comes to Jesus over and over, or comes to the judge rather, over and over and over, as taught by Jesus, to teach us that we all ought always to pray and never to cease from praying. Paul would say that in his first Thessalonian letter, to pray without ceasing. Daniel scheduled three times a day when he was in Babylonian captivity, when he would open his window towards Jerusalem. And he would pray. He had a schedule of prayer. It wasn't haphazard, but in the morning, in the midday, and in the evening, he would pray to God that God would forgive them their iniquities that placed them in Babylon and be with them each and every day and then deliver them back to the holy city, Jerusalem. I would commend to you that we ought to have a prayer schedule. First thing when you wake up, Midday and night, someone says, well, doesn't that quench the spirit when we place such rigid frameworks around our prayers? There is nothing wrong biblically with having a manner about you. Paul had a manner when he went into a new city. Daniel had this prayer schedule that he prayed three times daily. We ought to pray before we eat. We ought to pray when we wake up. The last thing we ought to do every day is to pray. If you feel guilty for falling asleep praying, there's a whole lot worse things in the world to fall asleep doing than praying. You say, but I didn't get a chance to say in Jesus' name, amen. The Lord heard that prayer. He heard that prayer. Pray, pray, pray. Jesus described it in Matthew 6, 6 as something that we enter into our closet to do, which tells us that prayer many times is indeed a private act between God and man. It is an intimate act between an individual and God. A phrase that I've considered much this week and of everything that we've planned to say today and have said today, this resonated in my mind more. Psalm 142 I cried unto the Lord with my voice. Now this is a psalm of David when he was in the cave, if you read the subheading here. And what this has reference to is when David was running from King Saul and he was hiding from King Saul, Saul comes into the cave to use the restroom. 
And while Saul is there in the cave, David sneaks up behind him and could have killed him, but David knows not to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. David says, I, I cannot legally, in the sight of God, kill Saul, even though he wants to kill me, even though I've been anointed as king of Israel by Samuel. And so David cuts the hem of his garment, and he lets Saul leave, and then he later comes to Saul and says, look what I have, Saul. I could have killed you, but I didn't. I honored you. Lay not a hand on the Lord's anointed. This is a prayer that David had when he was when? In the cave. The man that wants to kill him is 10 feet away from him. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make supplication. I'm begging God. Now listen to this language. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, when thou knewest my path, in the way wherein I walked, have they privately laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld, there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. That's why he's hiding in a cave. There's nowhere else to go. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, Lord. O Lord, I, I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Do you notice there that David has been humbled? I am brought very what? Low! I want you to see that strong link between answered prayer and humility. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. What does David say in verse 2? I poured out my complaint. Prayer is an act of pouring out. And those words have resonated in my mind all week. Pouring out one's complaint. You empty yourself before God. Interestingly enough, the word here, the Hebrew word for pouring out, is often used, most often used, to describe bloodshed. When blood would be poured out of a body because the body has been injured, or sacrifices that would be poured out before God, the blood poured, as it were. Sometimes it's used for pouring water out. I couldn't help but think of the violent nature of that, considering it's a word to be used for bloodshed. This is poetry. And when men write poetry, the Holy Spirit obviously inspiring him to do so, but when they write it, it's usually with language that contains exaggeration or perhaps very graphic language, pointed language, language that makes you think. How many times have they seen bloodshed in their life? These were men who were very versed in war. And when David writes this psalm, he recounts that he poured out his complaint, a word that even meant bloodshed many times. I poured out my complaint before him. As we pray that God would restore our land, I want you to pour out, to pour out how you feel to God. You empty yourself. You might fall on your face and weep before him. If I took this cup and I poured it out, all of the ingredients of this cup, all of that water would be in the floor. And today's a safer day to do that because the deacon that usually takes care of things like that isn't here. But if I were to pour it out, you get the imagery there. It is empty. It is empty. Take all of your complaints. Now understand, we're not learning of complaining about God. David isn't saying, Lord, I complained about you to you. No, God forbid. Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? Paul would say in Romans chapter 9. But he's complaining, his complaint, his anxiety, his fear relevant to his situation at the time. 
Again, he's in a cave with the man who's trying to kill him. I poured out all that is wrong before you. Take it to the Lord in prayer. I poured it out to you. And so our prayers can be poured out before God. And I hope that that language to you conveys the intimate nature of prayer. You're pouring it out to Him. You're emptying your heart of all of its concerns. Not only is prayer an act of pouring out, it's also something that ascends up. In the book of Revelation chapter 5, we read the scene of the throne of God. He came and took the book out of the right hand of Him that sat upon the throne. And when He had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders... They fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors. Now, what does an odor do? If you have a vial full of odor and you open the top of that, the aroma comes out of that into the room. These vials of odors are what? Revelation 5.8, the prayers of the saints. Your prayers in this symbolic imagery are odors contained in golden vials that ascend up before God. We pour our prayers out, but at the same time our prayers ascend up to God. You might wonder, does God hear my prayers? The book of John chapter 14 and verse 13, Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. I want this to be an encouragement to you. Does God hear our prayers? The answer to that perhaps is best framed as a question. Does God hear our prayers? Did Jesus die for you upon the cross? If Jesus died for you upon the cross, then God hears your prayers. And whatsoever we ask in His name to His Father, He will grant that God may be glorified. 1 John chapter 5, this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, now there's the caveat There's a lot of things we might ask for that are not His will. But if we ask according to His will, we have this confidence that He hears us. We know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. As the book of Hebrews chapter 4 says, because we have a high priest who makes intercession for us, who is touched by the feeling of our infirmities, let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is our high priest, we can come to God through Christ in Jesus' name. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. So we're turning over to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Think about that phrase, boldly. I don't think any of us would get very far if we pushed the gate open to the White House, marched ourselves up the sidewalk, slammed open the front door, marched straight to the West Wing, opened that door to the Oval Office and began to make demands to the President of the United States you wouldn't make it halfway through the lawn. And the Secret Service would have you flat on your face if you survived. But we can come boldly to the throne of grace, even to the throne of God to find grace to help in time of need. As far as what to pray for, which is the last point that we want to consider today, the model prayer gives us some framework on that, some guidance on that. 
When you pray, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven. Prayer should begin with God's praise. Hallowed be thy name. We pray to our Father that conveys to us the intimate relationship we have with him. Hallowed be thy name. Holy be thy name. But then you notice in verse 10, thy kingdom come. Before we pray for our own needs, we should pray for God's agenda in the world. Hallowed be thy name. God, we praise you. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And that phrase as or in earth as in heaven simply means that men would obey God and that God's agenda would be carried out among men in the same way that his agenda is carried out and obeyed among the angels. That we would obey to the same degree. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And then number three, we transition into our needs. And we notice that there are needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, take care of us today. Provide that which we stand in need of at this very moment in time. Jesus cautions against warning about the morrow, and he says that there's enough destructive things in one day that we need not worry about the next day. Sufficient unto itself is the evil thereof, he would say later in chapter 6. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. There's enough things to worry about today that we need not worry about tomorrow. The morrow will take need of itself, take thought of itself. Give us this day our daily bread, our needs. Verse 12, point number four, we pray for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, may we be forgiving people. And the severity with which God deals with you as a son in your life is largely contingent upon how you deal in forgiveness with his children. If I am harsh and unforgiving, God will be harsh and unforgiving with me in my life. If I am full of mercy and grace to my brothers and sisters in Christ, God will be full of mercy and grace to me. But we are to pray for forgiveness. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is one that I've been praying so much lately. Praying about people in our church, praying about my children. Lord, Deliver us from the temptation to sin. Lead us not into evil. And these two phrases balance each other out. God never leads you to sin, please understand. But deliver us from evil is the intent here. Lead us away from it, dear God, we beg. And number six, effective prayer is to contain doxology or worship. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In fact, prayer is an act of worship. When we come to him in prayer, we are worshiping him. The word worship many times in scripture was a word that was used. It comes from a word that was used when an animal would lick its master's hand. If you go outside at night and your dog gets on your nerves licking your hand because it knows it's about to get fed, that is one of these words for worship as it's used in the New Testament. What can we pray for right now? And we bring this to you in closing. Right now, the last Sunday of March, 2020, in a room with seven people in it, because we have to stay under 10. Everyone is 20 feet apart. What do we pray for? What can I pray for right now in the middle of this pandemic? Pray that God would show us what we do that offends Him and that we would repent. Pray that if I'm doing something that is offensive to God Almighty, that He would open my eyes to it and that I would turn from it. You see, as we come to the last portion of our study passage in the series, 2 Chronicles 7.14, it will be that we turn from our wicked ways. How can I know my wicked ways except they be shown to me? Pray that God would be glorified and that he would work in his people and overrule all of this calamity 
for revival in the land in all of this. Pray for God's glory. God, glorify yourself in this. I had to laugh last week. Everyone in the world is cooped in their homes. Nobody's going anywhere but Walmart, as evident by the lack of stuff. And what do they do for social interaction? Well, they turn to social media. So what does God do? He unleashes an army of preachers armed with smartphones on them. I've never seen more live stream. Welcome to the club. And we've been trying this since January of 2017. God unleashes an army of preachers armed with smartphones and the gospel on all of these people crammed in their house. I tell you what, it is glorifying to God when you see how he overrules this world and brings himself glory, especially among his people. You cannot escape sermons right now. Somebody said it's just like an association meeting last weekend. You heard preacher after preacher after preacher after preacher. And I was scrolling through Facebook today before we were here, and there were live streams with 90 people, 100 people. And I'm just like, look at all these people hearing sermons. Praise God. Pray that he would be glorified through this. Pray that the gospel would grow through this. Pray that the gospel of Christ would spread through all of this. <clears throat> Concerning the virus itself, pray that we find a cure. Pray that we find a cure. I've prayed many times over the past two weeks, Dear Father, we are but flesh. We are but flesh. God have mercy on us. This plague has taken the lives of many, many older people. It's taken the lives of some young people, thousands of people. And if left unchecked, it risks taking the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the globe. And so we pray that God blesses us to find a cure and a vaccine Concerning this virus, we pray that people would be spared from this virus. And we pray lastly that life as we know it, especially for the church of the Lord Jesus, returns to normal. But listen very carefully to me. We pray that life returns to normal with repentance. That as we come out of this calamity as we have sought His face, as we have humbled ourselves and as we have prayed, that as Nineveh, our nation found a national repentance, and much like with Israel so many times, that God's people that are called by His name find a spiritual repentance, that we would pray to God and we would come out of this spiritually stronger than we went into it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy. We pray, Father, that we would either put ourselves or be put in a position to pray. We know, Father, that when we are arrogant, when we are full of ego, when we are trusting in self, when we are full of pride, that you don't hear us. We know, Father, that our prayers by our behavior can be hindered. But we know, dear God, when we humble ourselves, as evidenced by the sackcloth and ashes of the Old Testament, Dear God, we know that when we take upon ourselves the heart of sackcloth and in ashes, we know that your son warned against external displays of religion, but when our heart has that posture of prayer, when we see ourselves as nothing in and of ourselves, when we know that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, when we come to you, Father, through your son as our high priest, boldly to the throne of grace, we know, dear Father, that you hear us, we pour out our complaint before you, Lord. These are troubling times, and so many hearts that are listening today are concerned, and rightfully so. Dear God, we pray that you heal our land, but not for the sake of us living our lives in pomp and pride and sin and lasciviousness. We pray, Father, that you heal our land, that we would return to the house of God, that moms and dads would train their children in the way they should go. The churches would turn from the stuff and the fluff and the entertainment that so permeates religion today 
that it wouldn't be a show, that people would come before you with singing and prayers and that preaching would be real. We beg God that we would turn from our wicked ways. We pray for repentance. We pray for healing. We pray for grace. We pray for mercy. And dear Father, we pray as we so strongly feel to be exiles in Babylon. As the psalmist said, we sat down by the rivers of Babylon and there we wept. Lord, as we are exiled in our own homes, unable to gather in the holy city as we once were, we pray, Father, that we would be like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the Hebrews that were so faithful to you in their time of exile. We pray, dear Lord, all of this in Jesus' name and amen.